Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Sometimes listening to a vineyard can tell you more about it than any tech sheet. Here are a few soundscapes from some vineyards I visited recently. You'll hear three different soundscapes, all from central Otago, New Zealand. First up is the Slapjack Vineyard from Terra Sancta. You can hear several birds singing their songs. Now we'll listen to the vineyards at Burn Cottage. Here, you can hear two birds talking to each other. And finally, we'll listen to the vineyards at Pisa Range. I got lucky because normally winds rip through this vineyard, but in this one, you get to hear some, you guessed it, birds. All of this amazing wildlife is one of the reasons why New Zealand has to net their vines. As soon as their grapes ripen, all of these hungry birds are waiting to swoop in and eat all the grapes. So next time you're in a vineyard, pause for a moment and just listen. You might learn a lot about where you are just from the sounds. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb 
at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Raj Parr on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Great. You? Great to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's great to be in New York. So you have many, many accolades and things that you've done, but instead of listing them, I thought maybe we could take it from the beginning. You were, you were born in Calcutta. Yep. And your family was somewhat in the restaurant business? Yeah, my, um, my parents were not, but my cousins in New Delhi, uh, they were in restaurants, so I used to go to New Delhi. I lived in Calcutta with my parents, and but twice a year I used to go to New Delhi and uh, hang out with my cousins who had a few restaurants there. And uh, since I was 10, 12 years old, I was always uh, hanging out in the office or following them in the kitchen or just, it was just uh, something I always wanted to be in. Always wanted to be in the, in the food service business. Uh, so, yeah. And originally you kind of imagined yourself being a cook. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, um, my mother tells me that uh, I used to be in the kitchen all the time and uh, when I was really young. And then I remember making breakfast for my family when I was like 10 years old. So I was always just, I, I love to cook. And uh, when I went to hotel school in India, because there, no, there was no cooking school. So that's how I ended up in uh, in the U.S. I, I came to uh, the CIA up in Hyde Park. Oh, okay. And they have a wine class there. Did you get to take yeah, that? Yeah. That was a, a great experience because wine, when I, when I got there, wine just got me fascinated. I'm like, what is this? This is, this is grapes. How can grapes be so compelling and so, so ethereal? So I started to uh, taste wine. They had like a wine club and... I started there, and then when I was uh, at when the wine when the wine class came about in uh, I think third semester maybe, I decided to take the morning class and the afternoon class, just kind of sit in both to kind of grasp as much as I can, and uh, that's what that's how I was totally hooked. Did you realize kind of right away you had a a particularly good palate? Because I mean, of all the people I've ever met, you have a particularly good palate. I Uh, found. Oh, thank you. No, I, you know, I, I, I didn't. I still don't. I still doubt myself. I still, um, you know, uh, it's. Uh, I, I asked a lot of questions. That's what my instructor told me. He's like, you asked a lot of questions about uh, flavors, and because you know, I had no experience in wine. I, I, you know, I didn't. The first time I tasted wine, uh, like real wine, was you know when I was twenty. I was with my uncle in in the UK. And so when I came to, in 94, when I came to uh, New York, uh, you know, I had very 
very basic knowledge. So was, I just knew it was white wine and red wine. So because there wasn't so much wine in India. No, there's nothing. Um, when I went to hotel school, uh, I was not very far from a town called Goa, and it was a Portuguese colony, and they made this uh, <laughs> port wine. But really, like you know, I haven't had it since. But you know. I'm sure it was no quality. <laughs> be, might be curious to go back, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's the next venture for Evening Land. You know I, what I mean? No. <laughs> you, know? you never know, you know? <laughs> Maybe Duncan and, uh, yeah. you know, Arnott Roberts want to go out there. there and, you, uh, you know, Make port one You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so you stuck around New York and you interviewed with a couple people. Who'd you talk to? <laughs> so the the first one I... I I, I met was when Kevin Zreli came to do a class and it was my first time I ever met Kevin Zreli and his lecture, which I'm sure many people have have heard, it basically hypnotized me and everyone around me. He, The way he speaks, I think the entire, we had probably a hundred plus people there. It was just, you know, just look at him and it's like, wow. So... And I was, I hadn't graduated then, so I was just like, I, had, I was four months away, so he offered me an interview. So I went to uh, interview with him and, and, and uh, Windows of the World, and and he's like, I need someone right now. I said, I can't, I have four months left. So he says, like, come back after you're done. So he was the first person I interviewed. But by the time I contacted him again, four months later, it was uh, too late because he had filled the, filled the position. So, uh, and then the other person I I went to meet was Daniel Jonas. Oh sure, because I wanted to be in New York City, um, and I, I said this is the place I want to be. And and I went to uh, see Daniel, and he was very nice. Interviewed me, asked me his question was, what are the five first quotes? So of course I answered it. And then he's like, I'm sorry, but, you know, I already have Tim Kopech. Oh, I thought he was going to say, I'm sorry, actually, like Burgundy. You weren't <laughs> supposed to answer that question correctly. No, no I was surprised he asked me a Bordeaux question. <laughs> yeah. But, but no. So so then he you know, he said, like, you know, it's it's going to be, uh, you know, we don't have a position. We have one person, Tim Kopech is here. So, And he says, you know, you should uh, maybe consider going to work with Larry Stone. So he sent you across the country. He just put the name because I didn't know Larry because you know I won't. That's a long bus ride. There was a long bus ride and 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 just around the same time I was graduating two weeks after and there was a big San Francisco article in the Wine Spectator and I saw Larry's picture there and then I sent uh, you know my resume and and I got a call for an interview because they both work for Drew. Work work for Drew, yeah, and and. Uh, so so I I went so I again I had no money so I borrowed some money from a friend of mine uh, in New York he still lives there he's my best friend here so uh, that was probably a pretty good loan on his part it was yeah he was you know he's like okay, I said all I need is enough money for a, for a one way ticket and something will last me a week in case interview doesn't go the right way so he, what was the vig on that do you have to send him a case of sandy every year or oh yeah forever. <laughs> forever. <laughs> No, it was. Uh, he he lives now uh, in Long Island, so um, see him now and again. Oh yeah, yeah, as often as I can. So, so so I went to to San Francisco, and a friend of mine picked me up, and he he said, "You know, I'll take you to the restaurant." I said, "Okay." So I went to the restaurant for the interview, 
And uh, the manager who, who had called me back said, yeah, we'll, we'll hire you as a food runner. I'm like, hmm, okay, I like, I, I can't go back because I only have one way ticket and I have enough money for seven days. And uh, I was like, all right, I'll start with a food runner. And uh, I had a six-month visa, uh, work visa, and after that I was go back to India. Cause... So I started working as a food runner and uh, then became a bar back, then a server, then a bartender. Uh, and at one point I was working lunch as a server, dinner as a bar back. So, you know, I was doing you know, a few things and then... How the how Rubicon operated back then was was the wine there was only Larry Store Samoye and only the bartenders helped putting the wine away and uh, so there weren't like assistant sommeliers. There at the time there was uh, he had just hired Rebecca Chapa um, so yeah she was she was there but you know I think she she left like a few months after that so I you know so then slowly I kind of. Um, you know, put in my hours and I was there at the restaurant every single day, all day long. Because uh, it sounds like if you're pulling doubles, you're probably there a lot. I was there, yeah. I didn't know anyone in San Francisco. You know, I lived in a tiny little shoebox room. So it was more fun to be at the restaurant? Yeah, absolutely. It was, I knew nobody. So, you know, my life was a restaurant uh, and I worked all day long, every day. And on the weekend, on Sunday, I used to rent a car and drive around Napa, Sonoma, uh, taste and try to try to see what uh, what's happening out there and this is this is in 1996 uh so slowly larry you know recognized uh my work ethic and my blind tasting he used to do a saturday tasting uh, that's how i learned how to blind taste and yeah so that's how you know i started to become larry's assistant he uh actually what happened was one of the managers uh put me on the floor when I was a, I was a server, uh, and he said, oh, "You know, Larry's out of town. Do you have a suit?" And I was like, "Oh, I have like one double-breasted suit." I'm like, "I hope it fits me." So, so I said, I, "Sure, I have a suit." I, I came on and started working the floor. And uh, Larry came back from his trip, and he's like, "What are you doing here?" And uh, that's when Larry is like, "Okay, you know, made me his assistant." So he's he saw me work the floor. So must yeah. have been a nice suit. In India, I was okay. <laughs> they have not, good tailors there. Yeah, they have good tailors. What was Larry like at that time? Yeah, he was. He, he's very different now than he was then. He was super intense. You know, he, his service was impeccable. It was his. Uh, I mean, the service was you know a different level. He was very focused on the guest, and uh, you know he was very uh, you know he was very strict. Is that true? Well, he come for trotters. Very very strict. Like you couldn't. You couldn't touch a bottle, you know, if the bottle's standing there or laying down, just don't touch it, you know. He was very, and his, his training was like very, like just very straight. There was no margin for error. Like he used to come, sometimes I'm working and I have a station. I'm a server at the time, I'm at the station, and he'd bring me like a little, like a drop of wine. I mean, like five drops of like, and he said, what is this? I'm like, uh, it's like 89 Lynch Bosch. No, you're wrong. <laughs> it's 90. And like never like you know he wasn't like oh good job you like you you really kind of like you know you're good no but like he, he never said that you know he was it was always like so you know I learned in that old school fashion I mean I'll never forget one day you know there was a, a, a Rumier first time I met Christophe Rumier there was Rumier and Metro tasting at Rubicon and 
and there was some, uh, you know, I went down to the cellar of those stairs to bring a case one up, and somebody had stacked the case, but there was a few bottles upside down. They yeah, current vintage. And I brought him up, and he just lost it that the wine is not standing up, you know, things like that. And things, you know, just if you don't, if you don't clean the top of the neck, I mean, just, you know, so like it's, it's that training I got was like, you just do not take it for granted. Everything has to be perfect because the guest is the most important and you have to serve the wine perfect temperature. I mean, he, this is a guy, so I'll give you an example, like Turley's Infidels, you know, back in, you know, in, in the nineties. So they were like, you know, kind of interesting wine. They were like, you know, this is so, and there were so many different vineyards. He used to taste every bottle before serving it and decide if it's going to go in a Burgundy or Bordeaux book glass. Oh, really? Every, like, you know, because Zinfandel, you could serve sure. a Burgundy or Bordeaux. So he used to taste every vineyard and decide which glass. And like, he, like, his, the way he thinks is like, it's so, that's the training I had. It was very just hard and straight. There's no like, this, it, there was, you know, it was fun because you learn from him, learn from the best, but it's, you know, it was a very different way of thinking. You could, you know, it's, it's, everything was very meticulous. What was Rubicon like at that time? I mean, who was coming in the door? Oh, it was, uh, it was amazing. It's, you know, I just, I get goosebumps thinking about those days because it was, uh, it was the a different era of the wine boom. There was, uh, old school wines because, you know, back then we would, we were tasting, you know, a lot of like, burgundies and rones from 78s and 85s because you know the cellar was full of them and and california was kind of changing into its new incarnation when you know when the 94 vintage was which was you know at that time was like a super juicy vintage and the 97 came out in like 99 it was still like so it was a the time and you know the wine scene was it every producer in the world came there uh, it was the epicenter of the wine world on the west coast and Larry was regarded as the greatest sommelier, you know, on the West Coast, and was Daniel Jonas on the East Coast. So uh, it was like I met everyone. I met all. I met Jeremy for the first time when he came there. Jeremy says. Jeremy says, yeah. How uh, old was he then? Well, I think in the interview he says he came to Rubicon with Diana. I, I was there. Uh, I remember that, and that's conveniently how, he doesn't seem to have mentioned you at that. Oh, that's no, kind no, of a, a strange snub. No, Larry Stone is more important. Than, you know. <laughs> uh, no, it, it was you know and. I met lots of producers, of course, a lot of Hollywood actors, uh, of course, because Francis Ford Coppola was involved, Robert De Niro and Robin Williams. So they, of uh, course, as partners in a the restaurant. They were the partners at Rubicon, so of course they came in. But you know, I mean, uh, Francis Ford Coppola always came in, and and uh, Robin Williams, you know, he was he used to come in sometimes and like you know stand in the hostess stand and like talk like Mickey Mouse or like you know crack jokes. And it was fun. He was you know he was totally and then. Many other Hollywood actors, and it was it was kind of a fun scene of like, you know, San Francisco locals, wine lovers, this Hollywood actors, and then uh, all bunch of winemakers. Every winemaker from around the world, if they came to San Francisco, that was a spot. And then, of course, not only for dinner or lunch, but also the late night tastings we used to have. We used to have a lot of. Uh, there was a great article one time about the late night. Yeah, tastings. It, it, it was. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Kate Crater, maybe? Uh, Food and wine, I think. Yeah, so she, it was, uh, and that happened regularly. And that went on, that, you know, we, we did those tastings uh, all the way till I think maybe 2004 or five. So service would so, end up and then you guys open up a few. Yeah, we all got, got together and everyone brings a bottle and there was no theme, you know, just 
bring a bottle and then we end up uh, having scrambled eggs at like three, four, five in the morning. Which whatever. is a tradition that seems to have continued now and again. Yeah, yeah. Apollo's and stuff, the scrambled yeah, eggs. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, uh, it was an amazing time because uh, there was an amazing breed of sommeliers because San Francisco at the time had like, you know, what's happening in New York now because there was, you know, at, at the time there was, you know, William Scher and Christian Dufault, Alan Murray, Andrew Green, myself, and a few others, you know, Peter Birmingham. And, you know, we had a really good community going on. And at the time, New York was all the sommeliers were, you know, slightly older. So there wasn't the young generation. And then now you see it's like this is New York City is is the greatest sommelier community on the planet. Um, well, I think it was also more French in New York, too. There were a lot of French. I mean, all the sommeliers. It was, you know, it was very hard to uh, sometimes communicate because it was like, you know, it's very old school. It was, you know. And uh, and now the it's 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 quite different. So it's it's one of the things that struck me about that generation of San Francisco sommeliers you just mentioned is that they all seem to really like each other. Oh yeah, we are, we were really good friends. We are still really good friends. Uh, we try. We don't do late night tastings anymore. We maybe get to have dinner together. So that's that's uh, that's that's as far as we get. And no more five a.m. Uh, tastings. So so do you feel like Larry and and that generation was really kind of your springboard for learning how to taste wine oh yeah larry you know i owe larry everything it's uh, i don't think anything in life as a, as a person um as a some way um as a winemaker larry is 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 the most important person he he taught me what wine is he taught me how to taste it uh, and explained every detail so uh and, and uh, even though i ha- ha- you know don't work for him anymore haven't well, for many years but those three years were amazing amazing time to work with larry but even after that he was always there to explain and and uh you know teach you and that's what mentors you know that's what mentors do and you know i try doing that if someone wants to learn from me it's it's uh it's important to pass your knowledge because uh that's uh because you know now it's much easier you have google Back then, do you, do you was, think that's changed the game a lot? I I think so. It's you know you, you can ask any question on the internet and find the answer. Uh, many times not accurately because even now and when you when you think of like old producers who you've met and and spent time with and they're no longer around and you think you know them really well because you're on the internet and read an article on them, but it's it's different. It's you know back then we used to go travel all the way to see them and um, I mean when I. When I went to Burgundy, uh, I've been going there since '96. You know, it was you know there was not that many people there. Daniel Jonas was there. Ned, I saw Ned there. You know, Ned Benedict. Ned Benedict, yeah. And uh, you know, the few sommeliers from New York were there, but no one from California. There was you know, so it was a different time. And now, of course, it's like the you know I used to go and hang out with you know with Christophe Romier and. You know, Dominique Lafonge, they were all together hanging out, and we should like just, it was very low key. It wasn't like a big deal. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't as, 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 uh, you know, now it's, of course, you know, they are, they were important then, they're important now, but uh, their time is much more precious now because everyone wants to go see them. So it's. Uh, and Larry had his own wine project, which was kind of early for a sommelier having his own wine label. Yeah. Yeah. Larry, Larry and uh, Emmanuel Kamiji. They were, you know, Larry's, Larry, of course, even though he loved uh, Pinot Noir Chardonnay, decided to make uh, Cabernet Merlot and Cabernet Franc. And uh, yeah, it was definitely ahead of time, his Cerida label. 
Uh, you know, I haven't had them in a couple of years, but uh, they were structured wines. A lot of uh, grip, I remember, especially oh, yeah. Cap Franc. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know, those wines were like, you know, like, you know, if you have the wines of Arnold Roberts right now, you know, that, they were in the same kind of model, same style. You know, they were they were not the big intense because he he made ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine, and they were like, you know, pure wines, just uh, really classic varietal and uh, and just very very pure. So you were tasting with Larry at that time, but you also had the tasting group with Wolf Yeager around <laughs> that time. How did you end up meeting Wolf? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. Larry wouldn't like that one, but he, I think he, maybe he's forgotten. It was one day when Wolf came in. Wolf came in a lot to Rubicon, but always Larry took care of him because you know all the important guests. You have to, you know, Larry was the man. So one day Larry was not there, and I happened to be there. And Wolf uh, started talking to me. and Said, "Do you have anything which is?" Amazing, not on the wine list. I'm like, let me go take a look. So I went to the cellar and looked to the bin sheet, and you know, it was all manual back then. There wasn't computers, everything. So we we went up, and I I brought down a bottle of like '95, I think it was like '95 Rumia Musini, and you know, the cost on the wine was like eighty dollars. So I'm like, you know, we have two bottles, you know, I'll charge you two hundred. And Wolf's like, you know. Well, okay. Let's yeah, have, yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> so I opened up for it. Wolf loved it. We just had chatting after that, and then you know he went, he left, and the next week uh, Larry came back, and and he's like, "Where are the two bottles of Rumi and Musini?" I'm like, "Oh, I sold one. Oh my God, that was it. It was, <laughs> I, yeah. He didn't speak to me for a couple of days. He's like, "You can't sell the wine. It's not on the wine list." And you know, I don't know. He's like, now you understand. If wines are not on the wine list, don't sell them. This, you know. But back then, I'm like. It's an inventory, so so I, uh, you know, that's how I became uh, friends. Starting off uh, with with Wolf, he he then started to like come in more often and uh, chat with me and share wines and and uh, yeah, he decided to start a wine um, a wine tasting group called Vintages, and he hand selected a bunch of his friends, a bunch of people who like his mentor for who is at Stanford and. Uh, few others and we got together you know once or twice a month and we used to taste one vintage um of either burgundy or bordeaux or whatever and just taste all the best ones because wolf seller you know it's just the thing of the wolf is that he he of course loves wine and he collects but he drinks them you know it's like you know he he, he would have no problem opening 78 Romani Conti at any time. It will never be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna open it at a special occasion or so. At that early, early age, I kind of like discovered like these are like crazy. These wines are like, you know, amazing. And uh, so that's, that's, that was that, yeah. And what was your next uh, job after Rubicon? Uh, so after Rubicon, um, Larry said you should go and, uh, you should go and work at Charlie Trotter. I said, sure, that sounds good. So, because I, you know, before I left Rubicon, I spoke to Larry and explained, you know, I'm, uh, I've, I've gone as far as I, ca I can. Uh, you're the wine director. I, you know, I need my own program. So, so he said, go to Charlie Trotter. So I went uh, for a stage there. At the same time, I was on the same trip. I was doing a little uh, tasting trip with uh, Josh Jensen from Calera, uh, we were in Birmingham, uh, tasting a bunch of old vintages of Calera next to Burgundy. So 
when I was, uh, so I went to Charlotte Water uh, for two days, did massage. I got a call at the same time from the Kimpton Group. When I was in Alabama, they said that you should uh, you should consider, you know, you opening a new restaurant, consider working for at the fifth floor in San Francisco. And I said, okay, that sounds good. So I came back, interviewed them. They offered me a job right there. And Charlie hadn't offered me a job. And then Charlie called two days later and offered me a job. And I was like, Chicago, San Francisco. And I was so attached to Larry, I didn't want to go. I'm like, so I called Charlie and said, I'm sorry, I'm going to stay in San Francisco. And and so I started working at the fifth floor. It was um, a little 65-seat restaurant, uh, which uh, was in a, a little hotel in, in downtown uh, uh, in the like the shopping district on 4th Street. Uh, and it had no sign outside. There was like, the chef was George Marone, who was well-known from his days in Aqua. He was Michael Mina's best friend. So there was like no track record. And Larry's like, I'm not sure it's going to work. I'm like, I'm going to give it a shot. It's, you know. What made you do that? Because that's not even a neighborhood that people live in. Yeah. Nobody really knew George Marone before that time. I mean, in terms of like, you know, restaurant writers and customers you know i mean it was it really just you want to stick around with larry or why, why did you turn down trotters which was one of the most I, famous sellers in the world at that time i i thought that if i was going to go to charlie trotters at the time i'll be following in the in you know spellman and joe spellman and larry and and not that that's a bad thing i wanted to have my own program and i don't know why you, know? you wanted to open a restaurant and put your I mark wanted, on it yeah yeah but it, it wasn't like an, an ambition it was more to stay in san francisco it was you know, I've never had like a burning ambition to do anything, which is going to. I just wanted to be in San Francisco. I wanted to be in the wine country and learn more from Larry, and that was the primary reason I stayed. And I said, I'll take a chance. This restaurant could do well. I could, you know, I had no idea what anything with the restaurant. So, and I had never ever written a wine list. I didn't know how to do inventory. I knew how to count bottles, but and this was a more corporate structure, so you have to like you know wine costs. I had never done wine costs before, so. So it was, it and, was, def- and it exploded. I mean, the restaurant was very popular. Yeah, it, it just, I think it was the, the, the dot com boom. Um, I think it was the first, like, of that time, a focused burgundy list, uh, very few uh, New World wines. And uh, there was, you know, it's a, it's a quaint restaurant. It was really, really like had all these small rooms, and it was, you know, it, was, it just worked. And, and I just kept building the wine cellar, and people kept kept coming and buying wine. So it was, it uh, yeah, it just it just worked. I I don't know how, I don't know why, but it was just all our efforts there, and you know, it was uh, it was a good three years. Because at that time, I remember looking at wine lists quite often. Any kind of style of restaurant that was fine dining, and it would often be deep verticals of Bordeaux and deep verticals of California Cabernet. And I remember looking at the fifth floor list, and it was a deep vertical of Ravenel. Yeah, which it, wasn't popular at that time. It wasn't no. a big thing. It oh, wasn't no, in the cover of the Spectator, Ravenel. You know? No, it, it was. I remember that I had a whole vertical of clove back from 1979, and they all went the hundred dollar range. There's nothing over two hundred. So it was, you know, you could find these wines. There was, you know, Burgundy was was not discovered like it is now. So it was, uh, you know, it was. I remember pouring eighty six Salos by the glass. You know, I mean, no one knew who Salos was. I mean, at least in our in in California, this is in 1999. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of Salos happening. There was 
Bobby Catcher was importing it back then, but you know, uh, you know, it was, it was it was like we had all the all the top wines by the glass, and and w- what I what I discovered in that restaurant, what I learned was that it's a high, fine dining restaurant, and people wanted great wine by the glass. It wasn't just like let's just have like eight wines inexpensive or just have some you know fancy wines that had names. So I started putting wines by the glass, which were like you know, were great, but not just, not like, you know, instead of putting silver oak by the glass, you know, even back then I had like, you know, Alamont Cornas by the glass or like maybe a, a Bordeaux by the glass, not just like names you recognize. So people really kind of were experimental and, and trying, uh, trying new wines. And, you know, there was the natural wine movement was, you know, wasn't around, but in a way it was because, the people who have made those kinds of wines have always made them. It, so it was. It's a very in a very small way. So what pushed you towards Burgundy? Because Larry, super smart guy, was known more for California at that time uh, in terms of his relationship to the wine list. What was it? The cooking? Was it uh, a relationship with a different importer? What was it that you said? Wow, Burgundy's for me. So the the restaurant was described as modern French. So. And my love for Burgundy started very early on when I was at Rubicon. And of course, the Epiphany glass was uh, 86 Ravano Clo. And I was, I was working the bar, and Larry gave a blind tasting to Rebecca Chapa, and, and she left the glass at the bar. And I smelled the wine. I'm like, what is this? What is this? So it was like. Did it still have her lipstick it on was, it? Was that? Did it still have lipstick on it? No, there was no lipstick okay, on okay. it. Okay, I was just making sure. Yeah, no lipstick on it. Because you're like, <laughs> I've never been able to find that again. You know, <laughs> with red lipstick together. Yes, together, no. There was no lipstick. Yeah, so, you know, so that, that wine was like, I was like, it's amazing. And then, you know, so most people would probably go into California and then Bordeaux or Burgundy. I went straight to Burgundy. I didn't, I, I didn't go, th- I didn't have the Bordeaux path. So, and then... You know, there were a lot of people like Steve Moray and Fred Dame, and, you know, they always come to the restaurant. Uh, you know, my friend David Felstein, who lives in Paris, he used to, he used to come to the restaurant, and many, many friends, Wolf. So they all drank Burgundy. So I went straight to Burgundy, and I actually also, before all of this happened, I went to Burgundy by mistake. I took a trip. I was in England in 95, and I had few, few few days free so i took a train to paris and then to dijon and not to go to taste wine i was like dijon makes mustard check it out I have a few days and there was some festival dijon happening dijon makes mustard yeah i know it's like you know that's like great poupon yeah really you know but you know i was in the food still they I do make like, a lot of mustard that's yeah, true. yeah this is before this is when i was still in at the cia and i went to dijon and there was some big festival there it was and I, and they couldn't. I couldn't find a hotel room. So someone said, "Oh yeah, the next town has you know, find a hotel there." So took a train to the next town, was born, and I took the first hotel right up by the t- station. I, and I walked and I had dinner at Cabo de Larche when it was an old. It was now it's much you know it's it's renovated, but it was old school Cabo de Arche. I had snails for the first time. I had Merceau and Volnay for the first time. You're in a town with a wine press in the center of the yeah, town. Yes. Right? So I'm like, what is this place? So then I stayed the next day, I kind of looked around and took the train back and went back. And so that stuck in my head. So then connecting that with 
when I came to Rubicon with Burgundy. So it just kind of, that's how it started. And you mentioned Catcher, but it seems like you've always had a long engagement with Kermit Lynch and rap oh. from Lynch. How did you first meet? Oh, Kermit. I love Kermit. You know, I, it's, it's funny that I, you know, I've loved his wines for many, many years, but I didn't meet him until 2009. No way. Yeah. Because, you know, he's based in Berkeley. I, I, you know, so I've, that's oh, surprising to me. But I had a very, very deep relationship and a great friendship with, with, uh, Steve Ledbetter, who is who basically he's he's his, one of his top salespeople, and I guess he doesn't do any sales right now, but he still kind of works with a few restaurants, a few friends he's he's worked with. But so my connection was with him. So he always used to like make me taste all the wines, and 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 uh, so I never met Kermit until '09, but the, the minute I met him and just became like we knew that it was the it was the same. Uh, we had the same language, the same love for wine, and and everything is done. So it was, uh, and since then I've, you know, spent some time with him. And uh, but it was the wines, I think that was, I think that's, uh, I, think, I think the wines might be more important than the man Kermit Lynch, even though he's the one who brought those wines. Yeah. So what was it like working with George Marone? Oh, he was a it's crazy. He was he was so energetic. His his idea of cooking food, but he was a showman in the front of in the front of the house. He was always in the restaurant, like walking around the restaurants. Also, sometimes serving food, talking to guests. Very charismatic. Yeah, it was really, and he really understood that that you know, great food and great wine they have to go together because you know, and 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 he was Michael's Michael Mina's best friend. So Michael Mina. That's how I met Michael Mina. He came for dinner, and it was. Uh, and he was working at Aqua at that time. Yeah, and Michael was yeah, the other chef at Aqua. Yeah. Did you ever work at Aqua? Or? Yeah, for uh, for a few months. Uh, when I left the fifth floor in two thousand two, I went to start. I was the wine director of the Aqua. They had a bunch of restaurants in California and one in Vegas. Uh, so I started there. I worked there for. I think three months, and then Michael left Aqua, and then I left, and we started the Mina Group. What was the chemistry like with Michael? Huh? Did you guys get along right away? Or right away, yeah. It was, it was, it was. You know, he's like family. It's, it's. Uh, for years, people would ask me, "Oh, when are you leaving Michael Mina?" And I'm like, "Never." It's like, you know, it's, it's. He never made me ever like never made me feel that I'm working for him. You know, even before I became a partner, he was always. It was always like. A true collaboration, and and that was like you know. So, I'm I'm not the the best with uh, authority, you know, but but he never made me feel that way. So you know, I like doing things my own way, and uh, and yeah. There are several restaurants in the Mina Group now, but they opened restaurant Michael Mina, yeah, which was off of Union Square, I believe the, it originally. Yeah, at the Westin Saint Francis, two thousand four. Yeah. What was that like? It was the hardest uh, opening of my life. Uh, I think it it uh, it was such a monumental restaurant for Michael to you know open his namesake restaurant right in the West in San Francis, in the Union Square, the only restaurant really on Union Square in the old building built in 1904. That it's was, a beautiful building. It was it's it's a great building and and just to have you know Michael there all the time and you know you're starting a new company and you're starting your your flagship restaurant right there so it was it was i know the you know the space was large it was, you know, it was 90 seats approximately but it was a large space tall ceilings <laughs> yeah and the wine cellar was a 5 minute run 
And of course, is that know, on a good day or a bad day? Uh, five minutes. Yeah, it was like you go down the stairs, fly, two flight stairs. Then you run like a hundred yards, make a left turn, open one gate, open another door, go in. It, it was like, you know, we were just soaking wet the whole the whole way through service. And of course, you know, I couldn't take an easy route and just say, oh, let's have a small wine list, and you know, everyone's happy. I said, no, I'm going to have the greatest wine. We're going to blow it out. Yeah, so, you know, and that's what happened. So we had one small cellar closer to the restaurant. The other one was, so it was, it was, it was a challenge. And, uh, yeah, made it work. You know, it was an amazing opening. It was an amazing, uh, amazing time to, you know, back in San Francisco after I was in Vegas for one year in 03. And you're back in San Francisco and the restaurant has had a great buzz and, Michael was doing these crazy trios. Yeah, he used to do the trio, like he used to do pork three ways. Everything like three that. ways, so it was like a nightmare trying to pair wine with that. Was but, that difficult? Because everything was a different prep. Yeah, it, it was. It was very challenging. You have to just nail it. It was, you know, you didn't have. Yeah, it's like you have one wine and for three components. Uh, so most most of the times I had one wine. Sometimes I had to pick three wines. So. It was, uh, but Michael, that's when it, we really kind of spent time together and every dish he made, he made sure that, you know, he would first start with me and then never just put a dish on the menu and say, oh, we changed the menu. So, and we had to make sure that we had the wine ready for it. And, you know. We had, so he cared about wine. Oh, he's, I mean, he he's the only chef I know, I've worked with and who, changes the dish with the wine and he would do that even for like you know if if, a, if someone's having a special bottle of wine and they ordered a dish he would change the dish or you know add a course to make sure it works because he and he understood that food and wine together is more important than them separately what would be your strategy? I mean, sometimes you're, you're pairing one wine, sometimes you're pairing three wines with a, a trio course. Or do you try to aim on the sides or how did you on, do it? Uh, uh, the, so there, there are three components. I would always aim for the, the, the center because so first, most people will always start either left to right or right to left. And always the middle component would be this, the second bite. And when I was... Uh, when I was thinking, because I, I sat down and tried the course with the wines, and and I always realized that the wine, the center, the center preparation was always the best, because because the second bite was you know what people really like you know settled on, and then he finished with the third bite. So, and they had those like special plates that they oh they were all custom Bernardo. It was yeah, <laughs> it was over the top. When did Will start? doing consignment with the restaurant he never did consignment uh for michael mina but what he did do is classic wolf is uh he did that also the fifth floor he would just show up uh with like two cases of wine and say hey this is for you put on the list it's going to add you know it's add to your vertical and those two cases were like 45 latour you know 28 lafitte like just like crazy wines like one bottle of like and he would just give it to you like, okay, put it on the list and, you know, it'll add to your collection. So he is that kind of guy, just the most generous person I know. He, he you know, he never, never said, oh, if you sell it, give me the money back. And of course, you know, we used to like give him whatever we could, but he was just that kind of person. And then in 2009, when we opened RN74, uh, that's when, uh, you know, we started to 
consign wines from wealth. Yeah. And where did the direction come from that? I mean, you, you wanted to do a burgundy restaurant or how, how did that get going? Uh, I think it was in 2007. I was really like, at that time we had opened a bunch of restaurants and I had been with Michael for four years and I was tired of opening restaurants and I was like, I'm ready to have one restaurant myself. And so I told Wilf, uh, you know, let's open a wine bar together. And uh, he said, oh, sure, sounds good. And he didn't tell me, he went to Michael the next day. So we had a meeting. So, so Wolf's like, let's meet at Michael Mina. So we, I walked in and there was Michael sitting there and Wolf was sitting there. So I'm like, oh boy, ambush. Uh, so that's when Michael said, you know, let's let's just, you know, do two more years of openings, and after that we'll open our in '74 together, all three of us. So that's how that happened. And you were in Vegas for a bit, for a year, uh, a year 2003, yeah, challenging year, '03. Yeah, it was uh, yeah, because when we opened, we started Mina Group, the only restaurant we had taken over was called Knob Hill at the time. That's right, I remember that. So I was there and, uh, you know, it was trying to reconstruct the wine list, get ready to open Sea Blue in the, in the same year in 03 in October. So, you know, just uh, wasn't, wasn't used to living in Vegas. I, I spent a lot of time living in a hotel. Uh, it was tough. And, uh, yeah. And so. Was it a different market? Very different, yeah. The, the way people drink wine, the way people sell wine, it's... You know, it's it's a very it's it's a very it's a very very different market. You basically only have like two major distributors. One basically Southern Wine Spirits, and then there's Wurtz Wurtz Beverage. So two big big companies, and you know I'm used to dealing with like thirty distributors and direct and this and that. So it was like you only had like basically Southern had everything, and and Wurtz had the rest. There are a few small guys, but you know not as not as important as. So it was difficult, you know, and then go through the hotel, uh, union, many layers, can wine wine directly, a lot of red tape and stuff. It was definitely like not like just pick up the phone and say, hey, can I get like, you know, a case of this, a case of this. It was, you know, it was different. So do you think that started you on a track of organizational skills? Because now when I look at how many restaurants you've been involved with, covering large programs, doing different projects all around the world, I mean... Where did the organizational skill set come from? Did you just hunker down and say, you know, I got to figure this out? Or, I mean, what was the, what yeah, was the generous? Yeah, that was definitely, uh, that's when it all happened, when, when, when the MENA group started. Because, I mean, I, you know, we had one restaurant on the fifth floor, so I could, like, manage it. I was, I was decent with Excel and, you know, pretty well organized there. But when you're starting to plan several restaurants, it gets more complicated, so I had to make my own systems and and and... Yeah, it was, uh, you know, a lot of time on the computer, a lot of time just, like, making your own, you know, your own system for yourself to operate because, you know, if you don't have your own you know, operating system, it's not going to, you know, things are going to go haywire. So it was definitely a lot of organization needed, something I wasn't used to, so I had to uh, teach myself. And uh, also in the beginning, Mina Group, we only had four. It was Michael Mina, it was COO, a CFO, and myself. So it was, like, a very small company. So... We started to, you know, grow up rapidly, and I, I knew that I had to have all my systems like laid out so I can, you know, even today when I do a wine list, I do it in a certain way, and uh, and so it's uh, something I taught myself. Yeah. 
did Mina himself kind of influence you in that in terms of his ability to run several kitchens? I mean, um, when I think of expanded groups at a high level, I mean, that's a lot of restaurants that, that are running at a, at a high level. Yeah, I mean, Michael, Michael doesn't spend much time on the computer, maybe now, but not back then. So he, you know, uh, the inspiration came from his ideas and, you know, I was inspired by him, you know, his ambition and how he wanted to grow and how systematically everything he went, went about. But I knew that the beverage program, at the time I was doing all the beverage in the beginning, so I had to really kind of focus and uh, and you know build my own uh, build my own system so that was so rn74 opens up and what was that like i mean one of the things i associate that with is a lot of wines by the glass with the enomatic system so rn74 um when we when we conceived that you know the idea was to have a you know a casual bistro style restaurant with a kick-ass wine list and what and as you know california is quite a casual place and at the time you know all the great wines of the world are all served in you know fine dining restaurants and everyone's in a suit and a tie and white tablecloth and everyone's like and i was like i want to break the mold and have a restaurant which has no tablecloth and it's a fun french inspired bistro with great wine served in jeans or sneakers that was the whole idea. I, I just wanted to take away any bit of pretension from wine. And so when, you know, someone comes in and, uh, you know, wants to have a $30 bottle of Beaujolais or a $3,000 bottle of Musigny, they would have the same experience. So until date, RN74 is still designed just like that. We don't, you know, we don't try to make it if any fancier than it is it's it is what it is everyone gets the same kind of service it's friendly it's you know and uh it's fun so because that that sort of sounds to me like certain restaurants i've been to in bone like ma cuisine or something where it's casual it's hearty food but the wines can be you know exactly that that that's that's exactly we wanted to do the, the, the wine service we wanted to keep the same as as all the restaurants you know didn't want to dumb it down or make it, you know, more elaborate. It was, uh, that's one thing in all our restaurants. The wine service is the same. You might, of course, one restaurant might have tablecloth, one might not, but, you know, all the wines are tasted before they're served. All the wines are stored at cellar temperatures, and it's, you know, so, and the stemware, you know, appropriate stemware in all the restaurants. So that, the, the wine service had to be the same in that restaurant and even in any fine dining restaurant we had, so. And what was the reception like? I mean, I know it's always been known for great wine. You know, was it more difficult on the food side, or how did things get going? Uh, well, luckily, the, you know, our opening chef, you know, Jason Berthold, he also made wine. He made wine with Abe Schoner, actually, and and he was he was a chef, so he understood wine, and that's one of the reasons we we had hired him, so he can he really knows that this restaurant is about a harmony of food and wine. It's not a it's not a restaurant which is going to you know, focus on the great cuisine. It's going to focus on great food and wine together. So he understood that it was. It was. Uh, I think people people love that. I think people love like you know to have like you can come in there and say I'm drinking this wine and just make me you know two three plates or whatever. And 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 people love that. You know. And, and I think also remember you're opening in April of '09. So there had been a little bit of a recession. It was. It was the. It was, it was everything. Our restaurants were dead. It was like 
And we were scared. We were like, no one's going to come. It's going to be empty for the first, you know, whatever. Till, and uh, so we were supposed to open at 5 p.m. that day, and there was a line out the door the day we opened. Um, and, um, yeah, that, that was... Uh, that was April 24, 2009. But you've seen two recessions because your career path went through 01, too. Yeah. So did that change? And then did that inform your decision-making when it came to 09? Yeah, I think so. I think I think that the, the one in 01 was a different kind of recession in the restaurant, I think, because in, in 01, everyone just stopped. Like, they just, like, I mean, it wasn't like they wouldn't even go to the restaurant. In 09, we saw at the time the recession was people still going out, but they will just, you know, be a step down. And in, in many ways, the price point was, was lower than, than the normal, but they were drinking more. But in 01, it was just like there was nothing. It was, it was a different, that was a much deeper, uh, in the restaurant at least, it was, you know, people just stopped going to the restaurants. And, uh, 09, you know, and I think that what really happened in 09 was also, luckily in 74, our clientele was kind of a younger clientele. And it was, uh, you know, because the music was loud and there was like, you know, it was busy. And yeah, you know, it, it just, it was, uh, the, the, the crowd was very different than, than when 01, just it was, the restaurants had a different crowd, I think. You've been all around the country and all around the world. How would you sum up the San Francisco clientele for fine dining? What's the what's it driven by, and, and who's who dines? I think that the we have some of the most loyal uh, customers. Uh, they they come back a lot. I think a lot of locals, uh, a lot of people from around the Bay Area. So people living in Palo Alto or in Oakland, uh, Berkeley, and I, I think that I think it's a very sophisticated clientele. They have a very specific palate. And they like to go, and they know exactly, you know, you know, the style of food they want, and they'll kind of frequent the restaurants, you know, which they like. It's, it's, they are maybe less experimental, maybe than maybe in New York, but it's, they are very like, you know, they know that, you know, they all, they all grown up in, at least the baby boomers, they all grown up in the Zuni cafes and Japanese kind of, and then now of course there's a whole new breed of restaurants in San Francisco, which. Uh, which is totally different than you know. Now imagine because there's a there's a there are three distinct layers of restaurants. Uh, there's the fine dining restaurants, the you know, the you know Kwa and and uh, Benum and Reza, Michael Mina, that, you know, the, and, and then there's this like little sliver of just great interesting restaurants like Bar Tartine, Rich Table, a New Verbena, Nico. All these like they are like you know. They add a lot of value in the food. Uh, they are a little more casual, and but the quality is very high. And then you have the super casual, fun like bistros, which are like you know very very casual. So it's you know, it wasn't that way before. Before all the restaurants were either fine dining, or they were some casual. So this this middle, the where are so many foots in the middle area, and this casual restaurants with great food and. And great wine it's uh you know it's 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 great even with that vision of saying hey we want to do great wine service in a less formal environment a more casual environment of rn74 did it surprise you how casual fine dining got like high quality food in a casual environment how quickly that just exploded i, I totally i mean after rn opened they were probably in the next year there were 20 plus new openings and all the restaurants had 
you know, tablecloth and fun and casual. Yeah, it really took change really, really fast. And and I think and you know, the same thing has happened in Paris and to a small extent in New York. It's, you know, it's happening here also. So, you know, definitely I think people want, you know, people want to be in a fun environment. They might not want to be, you know, have long tasting menus. Of course, New York is the only place where, you know, you can still get great fine dining and people want to go out and have the experience. But in San Francisco, it, you know, people people don't want to, you know, most people don't want to necessarily have, you know, long tasting menus and spend three to four hours in a restaurant. They want to. I found it's an earlier city. Like people go to sleep. Uh, yes, that too. Yeah, people go to sleep much earlier. It's not, it's not like New York for sure. Because, you know, unless it's a really hot spot, like a hip place, like 10 o'clock seems to be kind of the cutoff. For oh yeah, fine dining. You know. Yeah, nine thirty. <laughs> it's uh, you know unless on the weekend, but for the most part, it's an early city. One of the things that's interesting about you is you came up with a generation of sommeliers and you maintained strong ties with them. I mean, Christy Defoe worked at RN seventy four, for instance. But then you hired a lot of young sommeliers, some of whom have gone on to really amazing things. How did you see the generational changes? Are there a generational change? And what did you look for when you were hiring people in San Francisco? Yeah, I think the generation change is, is, I think, again, it comes back to what I learned from Larry, you know. I wanted to breed or uh, help and breed, you know, young sommeliers because, you know, I was young one day and I was taught by someone. So when I started hiring sommeliers at Michael Mina and then at RN74, I was looking to hire, like, motivated, passionate, young wine people and, like, and hopefully give them all the knowledge they need to go to the next level and you know when I hired Mark Bright uh, at Michael Mina he was 21 I think you know he lived with me and and we worked you know 80 hours a week for I don't know many years just to you know and then now he has his own restaurant he has his you know amazing projects he's doing uh, all over the world so you know and and, and that was that was something I learned because like you know because these young guys teach you something which you know, which which you will lack. I mean, Eric Railsback. When I had Eric, I literally had to go to L.A. and say, ask him, please come. You know, cause I really, I knew he'd be a great, great asset, and he soon became the head sommelier, and I learned a lot from him. You know, because uh, you know everyone has a different perspective; they have a different style and different palette. So you can teach them, you know, the basics, and but after that, they they still have their own motivation. So that was an amazing, uh, amazing hire. When I think back to some of the people you did hire, like Eric, like Dustin Wilson, it often strikes me how young they were when you hired them, Mark Bright. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a way that's, at least until fairly recently, different than New York, where they wanted people with a lot of experience. Was that from going on your own story and just saying, hey, I recognize myself in that young man? Or what, what gave you the confidence to say, hey, a younger guy, I can see this guy's going to work out? Yeah, it's, it's the, exactly that. It's like... All I need to know is the person has passion, is motivated, and can taste wine. And I can, you know, be confident that I can I can train someone to to get to their highest level. So, you know, I mean, when, for Dustin's a good example. So when I when I saw Dustin and in Aspen, you know, he he had uh, he had passed advanced, and he was in. So I you know I I asked him. I said, you know, you want to come to RN seventy four? You know, give me a year. And you'll taste a lot of great wines, and hopefully he's going to help you to become the master or become a master only. So he's like, so he took that, and he did exactly that. He he came there, he worked for a year, 
we, t- we you know we tasted a lot of wines blind and he tasted a lot of great wines and he became a masson and you know has a great job so that was like just knowing that this person is there you know it's, and he just needs like one step and then boom he's 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 you know in the next level so and one of the things you you collaborated on was a, a book that talked about the sommelier world called secrets of the sommelier with jordan mckay and yourself and how did that project get started and how did it evolve in 2004 publisher uh, called me and said you should write a memoir and i was like what that makes no sense it's like at the time i was what, 32 and i said no i you know not yet someday you know so the idea stuck in my head and uh, I spoke to Jordan McKay, who's my very, very dear friend and and a like-minded wine taster, drinker with uh, uh, with a good sommelier knowledge because his wife, Christy Dufault, is a great, great sommelier and, and teacher. So I spoke to him and I said, let's, you know, try to, you know, write a book on, on sommeliers because, you know, someone... Someone should have written one by by now, and no one did. So we said, let's just you know give it a shot, and we started, and we wanted to kind of you know first the book have a very kind of concise book and just kind of talk about sommeliers. Then it became bigger. We we had got to add food and wine pairing. Oh yeah, we have to add some regions. Oh, we have to add. So you know, it became a very personal thing. We traveled around the world. We interviewed you know hundreds of sommeliers, and uh, you know. Um, and my and my fear was that that this world of sommeliers is growing too fast, and there's too much uh, emphasis on you know buying power and you know just being like, and there was a level of humility being lost, uh, and 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 I wanted to kind of write the story of people in the past who never wanted to be sommelier. They became sommeliers because that's where the life, you know, led them. Richard Betts, Bobby Stuckey, Larry Stone, Fred Dame, you know, Danny Jonas. It's like, so, you know, and I, and I still, my, you know, my goal every single day is to, is to relate the stories, the story of all the great sommeliers in the past to the current sommeliers. And because, you know, no one, none of us woke up one day and said, oh, I'll be a sommelier. You know, it just kind of, you just, it was, and now there are a lot of people who just wake up and want to be a sommelier and, and assume that you go to sommelier school and become a sommelier. But unfortunately, it's, it's not that easy. It's, it's, it is easy, but it's, you know, to be a great sommelier takes years of patience and practice and, and uh, you know, and, and humility, which I, which, which I hope that, this profession uh, retains. And have you ever thought about doing a second volume of that book? Is there? A- you know, uh, hopefully, you know, one day we'll update it with with more stories. Uh, we, because we I'm are- saying I wasn't included, so I'd like to be. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. No, I'm, I'm just because it seems like a continuing story with the next evolution. Yeah, you know, it, it is, and you know, we'll at some point do in, in you know another version of it. But me and Jordan are working on. On a different book right now, uh, but you know everything. Our, our voice is the voice of the Somali community. You know that's what's important because it's not about me or Jordan. It's about collectively as what the whole community does because it's such a closely knit community. Uh, you know it's it's important for us to have that voice. So I think the next book is going to ha- 
it's gonna be different, but it's gonna have the voice of of us all together. And uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know how many more secrets there are, but uh, I think it's all out now. What does it mean to you to be a good wine taster? I think that many people uh, taste wine not from not from the heart, from the head. For me, it's important to taste wine from the heart. That means there's emotion in every wine, and you have to relate with that emotion. Because if you systematically break it down by, you know, color or by aroma or acidity, like, you know, you 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 lose the love for it. Then you start to kind of, you know, because you know I've loved wine sometimes a high VA or has a lot of bread or you know whatever. So, and sometimes when you kind of focus on the negative, it's the same thing in human emotion. If you if you focus on a negative energy your all negative energy inside your body is going to be become like this big ball of negative energy. If you look at a wine and just identify the one fault it has, you can't enjoy the wine on its own. So a good wine taster has to taste the wine and understand the wine. And hopefully if it's a blind tasting, you know, uh, try to figure out what it is, but also relate emotionally with the wine. It seems to me in the way that you've built lists that you have very strong relationships with certain wines. Yes. What are some of those wines and what have they meant to you? You know, um, and that's it's like a it's like quest. You know, it's like it's like my my quest to you know find real stories of real people and real wine. You know, it's like the first time I you know I met uh, Jean-Marc Rouleau. You know, and that bond uh, till today is 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 super tight. Dominique Lafont, Christophe Rumier, you know, Bert de Villain, Jean Michel, all these people, and I and I went to see them and understand what the philosophy is. And there are many others, you know, Jean, you know, Jean-Laurent Vacheron and Jean-Dominique Vacheron, Sancerre, these people. And, and forever, I will always, you know, chase, chase their wines and, and love them and put them on wine lists and drink them and recommend them because they're real stories. And you see the story of the person, you see the personality of the person in the wine. And there are not that many wines in the world you can say, that, okay, I see this person and this person's, how his character is, is in the wine. You know, it's 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 a, I, I, it's a kind of a funny comparison. You might relate with this of um, Giuseppe Rinaldi uh, versus maybe like Domenico Clerico, right? Very very different people. Great, both great. Both make two different styles of wine. You know, a different pleasure. You know, and and when you go see them and you spend time with them. You you get this emotion, and you and you can tell the story of the wine by tasting the wine, or then you can talk about the person while having the wine. So that's that's been my quest, and it continues uh, every day. I, I try to you know think about like how can you you know talk about something relate with the person who is greater that. And have you seen that sometimes as a family story? Is there a succession there? Uh, yeah, it's su- succession stories. You know, it's it's uh, you know you have to really follow deep. I mean, of course, Succession Story, the 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 greatest success story. I you know he was talking earlier about Jeremy Sess and how you know I met his father first, uh, and then I met Jeremy after, and and I tasted with his father many many years before I actually tasted with Jeremy the first time. So, not to say that the wine is very different than what his father made, but you know that that's it's 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 a different it's a you know it's a different person. And making the wine, so of course the wine has, you know, its own attributes and has, you know, a, has has a different kind of focus. So, you know, it's you know, it's better or worse. People can argue about that all the time, but it's it's about the person. It's you know, 
is Jacques is different than Jeremy. You know, they're very similar and very different. So, all the men that you mentioned are men. Is it a, is it in a way a male bonding story? <laughs> I mean, it just yeah, it just yeah. I guess it happened that way. I, I don't you know I don't I don't look at it. It's not you know it's it's uh, you know I've I've, ha- I've had great experience with Anne Claude Lefebvre. That's uh, you know met her early on in, in Burgundy and. Uh, you know, it's uh, yeah. There, it is. It is a somewhat of a male dominant uh, kind of an kind of a wine circle, I guess. I mean, there are lots of great female winemakers and and many who may who I haven't met probably, and you know. But yeah, it's uh, definitely definitely male dominant. Looking at the wine culture in the United States when you first arrived here and started to learn about it and kind of get aware of who was drinking wine till now what are you happy about what are you unhappy about in terms of that evolution uh, i'm really excited about the younger generation really having an open mind and really really kind of trying everything and you know having an opinion and and not necessarily being the label readers you know like looking at something and you know i'm i am unhappy about sometimes when there's such a prejudice about about California, you know. I think I think, you know, being and I I'm not saying that I drank California wine, uh, you know, but there is a lot of people who just like don't think California can produce anything compelling, and you know, it's always the old world is always better than than California, and 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 there might there's a good reason for that. I'm not supporting it, but I think people don't give it a chance, and I think with this new generation and you know John Bonnet's book, and you know many other stories uh, which which people have written, and and the wines being made. I think that it's sometimes disappointing that that people don't give it a chance. We'll have to have you back to talk more about what you've done to change that in your own life. Raj Bar, thank you very much for being here today. Oh, great! Thank you. It's great to be here. Really enjoyed speaking with you. It's a pleasure, is mine. Thank you. Raj Bar, sommelier, author, winemaker. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.